I can tell you the, the child is 10 month old, his name was Davion. And so uh, Davion, I believe, would have been about 15 or 16 years old today if he had lived. Uh, myself and Detective Mayfield had got, gotten called out to Children's Hospital about 2 or 3 a.m., uh, as we do a lot in, in this unit, uh, regarding Davion having been taken there by ambulance because he had a massive head injury, some rib fractures, and punctures on One thing we want to do every time, we want to get it right. Uh, we don't want to put anybody in jail that doesn't need to go to jail. But the people that need to go for abusing children, we want to, we want to get that right every time. So we, we, we have a standard that, that we have to live up to. Uh, people have rights and, and we're, going to, we're going to do the right thing every time. I've learned that if you can help, if we can help one a day, if we can help one a day, that's awesome. If, if you get the chance to help two or three or more, hey man, that's more than merrier. But if you can help one, well then uh, we, we've done our job and, and we're going to continue to do our job. And that's, that's, that's one thing that helps me get through. If we can help one every day, well then uh, we're doing the right thing. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast, brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but we get strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Child abuse casts a shadow the length of a lifetime. Herbert Ward. In preparation for this episode and this topic, this quote resonated with me. Being a survivor of child abuse myself, I have a constant reminder that we may not see the mark of abuse on a child because it is not all physical. The shadow of this early abuse can spread the length of a lifetime. Today's guest has dedicated over 30 years to the citizens of Dallas and nearly two decades of that have been protecting the lives of the true innocent and those who cannot protect themselves, the children. Detective Corey Foreman grew up in Garland, Texas, and joined the Dallas Police Department in 1993 in Class 238. He is now married and still drives that Toyota with over 300,000 miles, and his goal is to make it to 500K. Once again, proving that Toyota makes a damn fine vehicle. This episode will detail Detective Foreman's life and his career, but also give the listener a small peek on 
this awful epidemic of child abuse. We will take you step by step through an investigation, the multiple partners involved, and how it literally takes a village to conduct a child abuse case to get some semblance of justice for these kids. It's the ATL's honor to welcome on the 2023 Irish Birch Partner of the Year recipient, Child Abuse Detective Corey Foreman, badge 6997. Detective Foreman, welcome to the ATL stage. Thank you. Before we get into your story, um, we're going to uh, talk about some co-hosts we have here. We always have the great Sergeant Kent Wolverton, but we have Keisha. Can you go ahead and tell the listener who you are? I'm Nikisha Biglow, Director of Partner Relations at the Dallas Children's Advocacy Center. Okay. And my wife, Detective Kristen King. Can you go ahead and say hello? Hi, it's good to be here again. Again. So, this episode, it's kind of long overdue. I've been trying to get Corey on for a good while and also get somebody on uh, on this topic of, of uh, child abuse. And I can't think of a better person to to have on to discuss this uh this type of investigation and um you know there's gonna be parts of it i'm sure gonna be heavy i'm not exactly we have a flow set but i'm not exactly sure what uh what cases he's gonna talk about but you know there's there's no pretty in uh in child abuse investigations Corey, are you ready to get into it let's get it cracking all right all right for i'm gonna start off with uh some soft pitches here where did you grow up Garland, Texas. Okay. Uh, I've talked about Garland before. It was it's like I don't know, like fifteen minutes east of uh, Dallas. Correct. Northeastish. Northeast. Okay. okay. Uh, growing up there in Garland, what was home life like for you, the family? I grew up with my mom. I had a sister uh, and a stepdad uh, at some point. Uh, due to some family violence issues, my sister went to live with her grandmother, and I went to live with my aunt, my mom's sister. And pretty much my aunt raised me uh, from the age of 8 until 18. Okay. How did that impact you? That, uh, as far Did you have to move schools and, uh, or any of that? Um, I, I did because initially with my mom, we were living in Oak Cliff, and uh, my aunt lived in Garland. And so I moved to Garland and uh, already had some friends there because I spent a lot of time there anyway. And so I went to school and uh, grew up there. So until eight year old, you were at Oak Cliff? Yes. Okay, what part of town of that? What school? Uh, uh, it was Mark Twain Elementary School. Mm. I went to Bertie Alexander. Okay. Do you remember that one that's over there? On yes. The, yeah. Um, so Garland, it's... It's changed a lot. When you were there, Garland is it was pretty nice. It's a nicer suburb of Dallas. Well, yes, it is, but I, I didn't live on the nicer side. Okay, uh, I lived uh, more on the east side of Garland. The demographics have changed significantly since I was there. Uh, I can tell you that in my neighborhood, there was not a single Caucasian family. There was one Hispanic family that lived across the alley from us however now my aunt still lives in the same house and uh probably 80 percent of that neighborhood is now hispanic okay wow it um was it a big difference from going from oak cliff uh to, to garland 
Uh, not not a huge difference at all. Okay. No. Did you play sports? I did. I ran track. I played football. Uh, eventually, when I graduated from Garland High School in 88, I got a track scholarship at Eastern Oklahoma State. Wow. What you college. run? I ran the half mile and the quarter mile. Okay. What was your quarter time? Uh, I believe it was a 48.5 or something like that. That's strong. Yeah. Enough That's to get me a, a scholarship yeah, at junior no. college. Nice. So when you got out of – going to segue into college – you get into college, and where'd you go to college? Uh, Eastern Oklahoma State in, Junior College. In, yeah, in your major? Uh, back then, it was You were about running track. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was just t- taking the basics. Uh, you know, I did two years there, and, and then I went to UT Dallas in Richardson. Okay. Yeah, and, and what did you focus on then? I'm, I want to get into an internship that you did. Right. Well, my major was interdisciplinary studies okay. with a focus on law enforcement. And uh, part of my degree plan is that I had to do an internship. And so um, in one of my law classes, I met a detective. She was a detective back then and the child abuse unit. Her name is Sabre Garibay. And she did 20 years uh, in the child abuse unit. And I believe she did 26 or 28 years on the police department. Um, She befriended me and we talked. And she basically was like, hey, you know, I know part of the degree plan is you got to do an internship and she explained to me that uh, she was with child abuse and that she was at the Dallas Children's Advocacy Center that's where uh, her her base of operation was where was the, uh, the DCAC at that time at that time it was at 3611 Swiss Avenue uh, and that was back in 93 1993 okay so you started work. You started interning there. What type of how'd that look for you as far as doing internship? Well, initially, um, I met with the families when they brought the kids in. Uh, sometimes even played with the kids and got them food. But uh, me knowing Detective Garibay, she uh, talked to Sergeant Rich, Fred Rich, who was the sergeant at the time, and said, "Hey, you know, he's interested in law enforcement. You know, can he kind of hang out with us a little bit and, and see exactly what we do?" And uh, I was allowed to do that. Just do a little bit more than a normal run-of-the-mill internship, the uh, shredding papers and and filing. Right, right. I I was able to uh, observe detectives do uh, interrogations. Uh, I was able to uh, see some of the forensic interviews, not a whole lot, but definitely observe the interrogations. Before you said you were focusing in law enforcement, so yes. you wanted to be a police officer before that. Um, I, I had thought about it. Um, I actually took a class on on policing, and I uh, thought it was pretty good. Now, let me preface by saying this: I'm one of those people who uh, never had any negative uh, interactions with the police growing up as a matter of fact the only interaction i had with the police was i believe it was back in 78 my mom and i were driving down 30 and there was a we had a flat tire and it was raining and it was cold and an officer stopped and fixed the tire and everything and then after that now granted this was uh back in the 70s and i believe my mom was about 28 years old she was pretty good looking and so after that uh the officer invited us to go to mcdonald's (laughs) And so uh, we went to McDonald's and he bought us some McDonald's. And uh, that was the one and only experience I had with the police, Dallas police. And and it was really good. 
did you before you met Sabra had you considered child abuse or had you thought about that no uh actually no because um at that time I didn't even know child abuse existed uh, I grew up pretty green I didn't know anyone who had been physically or sexually abused I'd never even heard of anything like that what was it like when you went to the advocacy center and then started seeing the interrogations and started seeing the families and was that kind of a rude awakening for you it it definitely was I was quite green at the time and like I said I didn't know child abuse existed I'd never heard of it before and uh, it it definitely my, my interest grew because of that one thing I've noticed about child abuse is even going into it, even if you do know that child abuse existed and you you kind of have an idea and now we have Law & Order, SVU, and you, right. everybody's seen that, right. you don't know until you get into it exactly how bad it gets. And you think you know, but once you get into it, you don't like how bad it really gets sometimes. So true. So true. Well, how did... It- how did that sorrow strike you, though? I mean, being so young yourself and then coming in and you're you're seeing uh, kids, you, you say that it was you're green to it. Being green to a type of investigation or type of offense is one thing. But but being impacted by the I mean, clear sorrow from Correct. these kids are coming in. How, do, you, right. do you remember how that struck you back then? Uh, I, I was done dumbfounded. I was, I was really saddened uh, to see that something like that was happening because like i said i've never known anyone that it happened to not saying that it didn't happen i just wasn't aware of it and and i've never been a victim myself and so uh it it was definitely uh something something to see and 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 i gained interest because of that do you think you got more you gained more interest in uh, getting into law enforcement by doing that most definitely okay knowing being in that internship back then did you did you have in the back of your mind like, okay, this may ultimately be something I want to do once I get in a department? And did you ever think about that? It did. Um, even Detective Garibay was like, hey, you know, if you ever decide to join the department, uh, if you promote and we have an opening, you know, um, and I'm still here, I'll let you know about it. And, you know, you know Sergeant Rich and, you know, you need to apply for a position if one comes open. And it was maybe 11, 12 years after I'd been on the department that I promoted and a position had come open. Now, back then, uh, being a child abuse detective was a coveted position. And you had a whole lot of people apply, and a lot of people wanted that job. And so uh, I was lucky enough to have applied. And uh, like I said, I knew Detective Garibay, and I hadn't seen or talked to Sergeant Rich uh, in all those years since the internship. Uh-huh. Why did you pick Dallas? Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, so before I graduated from college, uh, I was basically a told, told to apply everywhere because you never know. So one of the first places I applied was uh, the home of our chief, Garcia, was San Jose Police Department. I went out. uh I did the application process. I actually got hired by San Jose. However, the academy was to start about a month before I graduated from college. So I had to turn the job down, and they were going to recycle me into a later class. Well, while I'm waiting over the summer, I got the call from Dallas 
on a Wednesday saying, if you want this job, be here Thursday. And so one in the hands better than two in the bush. Yeah, the, Dallas always calls first. I think there's a common theme with our recordings. <laughs> People say they, they throw out the fillers to a lot of right. departments. Right. And uh, Dallas's, uh, Dallas's door opens first. Right. So what cl- uh, academy class did you get into? I was in class 238. Are there any other classmates uh, still in the department from that class? Uh, I believe it's Jason Perez. Dexter Ingram just retired. Uh, there's Marco Salias. Um, Jim, I can't think of his last name. The sergeant at South Central. He's been there for a while. He's still on. He's still on the department. Uh, mm. Sorry, Jim. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get yeah, your name. I, right. I, I can't remember his last name. <laughs> yeah, he don't listen to you. Anyway, um, so. And uh, Janie, her, her previous name was Flowers. She's in she, PIU. Yeah, Jamie Bisabel. Yeah, yeah, Janie, Janie Bell. Janie Bell. Yeah, 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 she's in PIU now. Yeah, Jamie Bell was okay. in my class, and I, I think there's only four of us left right wow. now. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, did you have that Toyota back then? Oh, that Toyota. No, actually, I did not. Um, you know, we were discussing to have a, a Toyota 4Runner with 300,000 miles on it. No, I bought that Toyota five years ago with 50,000 miles on it. So I've been driving a lot yeah. over the past five years. I got a, you live in Oklahoma? Well, no, I got, a, okay. I got a 13-year-old daughter okay. who lives in Fort Worth. And, you know, even though the visitation's every other weekend, she wants to come every weekend because, you know, it's daddy gets her what she wants and she runs track. So we do a lot of traveling down to South Texas or, or whatnot, other areas throughout the state to, to watch her run. I did mention that Toyota in the uh, intro that you're pushing for five hundred thousand. Yes, sir. I, I refuse to <laughs> buy another automobile until I absolutely have. What to. year is that? It is a 2010. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Toyota's a fine vehicle. They are. Yeah. I don't, I'm just, when this one dies, I'll get another one. Okay. So when you graduated uh, the academy, what class, what division did you go out to? Uh, I went to Northeast Patrol Division. Uh, of course, things were a lot different back then. I had three trainers who were all very different, all very good, uh, but all very different. So I learned a whole lot. I would have to say uh, deceased uh, Walter Clifton, uh, who was my tr- who was my first phase trainer on, on days. He was an awesome guy. Uh, he was a full bird colonel in the military uh, at the time. And so I learned a whole lot from him uh the most important thing i learned from him about being a police officer is the meaning of the word discretion um basically telling me that just because you can put somebody in jail doesn't always mean you should use your discretion as an officer and that's one thing i I carry uh along with me right now is being a detective did you did you do fit before you became a detective did you do field training i did okay where at uh at northeast excuse oh, me northwest patrol northwest. on deep nights yes. okay did you uh keep that same mantra of uh discretion to the rookies did you pass that along most definitely okay. uh discretion and uh make a decision try to make the right decisions uh with, all, with the information that you have uh and if it happens to be the wrong decision if your heart was right we can fix that don't worry about it but make a decision yeah, you got to make a decision, right? Because you know, it, uh, the not making a decision could have more of an impact than actually making a subpar decision. Most definitely. So we touched on the child abuse. So 
you you danced around how you applied can let's get into that let's talk about when when that position finally came open you were that is the first detective job that you it's the first detective job that i had um and actually when when detective garibay called me and said hey we have an opening did you promote i was like yeah she's like well you need to apply now let me tell you this I, i was torn joe because I was very happy on deep nights in patrol, as strange as it sounds. I was very happy in patrol at the time. And I interviewed for the job. Um, and the day after the interview, I had a trip planned to Miami. And so I was in Miami for a week and a half. And when I got back, my sergeant's like, hey, they've been looking for you in child abuse. Do you want the job? Because it's yours. And I was excited. And so I was like, well, I'm still happy in patrol, but I want to try that. And, and my best friend, who's not in law enforcement, uh, we talked about He's like, look, man, you need to do that. If it's not the right fit for you, if you're not happy, can't you always go back to Deep Nights at Northwest? It's like, yeah, you're right. And so I, I, I took the step. Nobody's beating down that door. Deep Nights. That's what I hear. What were you doing that Detective Garibay remembered you after 10 years? That's a, that's a long time for someone to, to be thinking about you and being like, hey, we finally got a spot. Why do you think she called you after all that time? Uh, I, I had seen her back and forth over the years. And uh, I, I think at the time I, I was so excited about what I was learning in child abuse at the time. Uh, and I think that's what it was. I was excited. Uh, I, I wanted to learn. And the mere fact that I, I think I was just so green and just had no idea that those type of crimes existed so working deep nights you didn't see a whole lot of detectives let's no, be honest <laughs> no as, as a matter of fact uh the only time i ever saw detectives were were homicide detectives and um you know i was just thinking the other day when we're talking about doing this podcast um in my 12 years of work in patrol before i became a detective i didn't have not one child abuse call in patrol which is kind of different because now sometimes I see the same officers come through the door. Uh, Why do you think that? I mean, I've noticed that too. There's a lot of officers. Do you think they are? Well, everybody, there's an interest in in that type of offense, and also being a being a part of an offense to call you to work the case up to get that uh, kid some justice. But you didn't have that background because I know that Kristen talks about there are there are a lot of uh, officers out in the streets that it seems like they volunteer for those type of calls, right? And, right. and and there's and there's officers that volunteer for every drug house call. There's you know uh, right. DWIs that jump on, so it's just something that they gravitate to, right? For whatever reason, right? So you not having any detective experience, how? uncommon was that going to a unit like that because that is that you said that was a coveted position right. it was a coveted position back at that time and um i think it still is now but it has to be the right person um from from what i understand i did very well in the interview and that uh that had a lot to do with it and of course i, I did have the interest as well when you also uh you had people pulling for you too because I did. They, and and that that does make a difference but also you did have some background in the inner workings of the DCAC which Correct. that entity is crucial to it these is. investigations it is uh crucial in in almost every aspect of our investigations yeah i will say that having the 
background, I would think, in the child abuse. So they, they know you. They know that they get along with you. They know that you can handle the material. And you kind of already have an idea of how the entire team works because it really is a team system, which I'm sure we'll get into. Right. Um, is not having to go over that with you right. probably helps. And then you said that the sergeant was the same one that was still there. Yeah, he, he was. Uh, but let me say on this note, the, the week he hired me, the week I started, uh, the following week he retired. <laughs> so uh, I, I made a promise to him that, that I would do a good job and that uh, he, he made the right choice. And so... Are there a lot of men in that division over there with child abuse? It, it seems like it would be dominated more by the female detectives. A- actually not. Uh, I believe there's five of us, correct, Christian? Yeah, it's almost 50-50 right now between men and women, actually. How did that look whenever you got there, though, as far as the, the makeup? and? Uh... Actually, there, there, was more wi- excuse me, there were more men really? back okay. when I interned back in the 90s. Okay. Uh, and I believe there was... Uh, only two women at the time. Only two female detectives. There were probably more men on the department, too, at the time. Too. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Certainly. What about uh, who were the bosses whenever you said? Uh, I was Sergeant, Sergeant, Sergeant Fred Rich. He, was he the took boss. off, but who took over after that? Uh, it was Sergeant Brenda Nichols. Oh, yeah. And then uh, Sergeant Reggie Matthew. Matthews retired about, what, four or five years ago? Yeah, I was in legal whenever he retired. Right. I remember, yeah. Uh, yeah. I right. remember him. And now it's Sergeant Mike Vaughn. Yep. What was true? We've talked about between us about training and how it's changed over the years and how different people have kind of gotten different training. What was training like for you when you joined? Well, uh, my trainer was Kimberly Mayfield. Kimberly is a special individual, fantastic detective. Uh, I learned a lot from her. Kimberly and uh, Sabre Garamay were definitely my mentors. Uh, they taught me a lot. Sabre Garvey was the most thorough person I've ever met in my life, which was great. And uh, the thing about Kim is any questions I had, if she didn't have the answer, she knew where to find it. Uh, one thing that Kim taught me was that if I'm working a case, if I'm if I'm having some, some trouble trying to really figure out what I want to do with it, she's like, hey, if it's not a decision that has to be made immediately put it to the side come back two three weeks a month and just see how you feel and i still do that yet today and uh by doing that and even speaking to other detectives uh senior detectives like myself and even some younger detectives to get a different perspective uh that helps a whole lot yeah to have that collaboration definitely everybody thinks differently correct and looks at different lenses just want to shout out Kim Mayfield. She worked my first uh, ever child abuse case, and I think every child abuse case that I was ever a part of after that, right. she was there for a long time before she decided to go do other things. So yes, yes, she was also uh, our ATL treasurer okay. uh, for a long time. Right, and I mean she just she just retired, right? Yeah, she 20, just retired twenty three, uh, maybe last year? two months ago. Yeah, it was Something that. Yeah, like that. long time, a long time, and 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 now you're the senior detective in that unit, right? I am. Okay. And what year What year was that that you got in there? It was 2006, I believe it was. Okay. And you're still active there? I'm still there. Okay. Still there. Still grinding out every day. Can you talk about the first ever case? I know, so Kim was, say, a mentor? Yes, yeah, she was. She Kim actually trained me mm-hmm. when I came in. And so usually uh, back then, 
before you received a major case as a new detective, um, it was about a year before you received a major case back then. Uh, that major case came in. I can tell you that the child was 10 month old. His name was Davion. And so uh, Davion, I believe, would have been about 15 or 16 years old today if he had lived. Uh, myself and Detective Mayfield had got, gotten called out to Children's Hospital about 2 or 3 a.m., uh, as we do a lot in, in this unit, uh, regarding Davion having been taken there by ambulance because he had a massive head injury, some rib fractures, and a punctured lung. Uh, when we got there, I spoke with Davian's mother who told me that her boyfriend, who was not the child's father, had been babysitting him while she was at work and that he called her basically stating that something was wrong with Davion and she needed to, came home. She needed to come home. So after speaking with her, I, I sat down and I spoke with him and he basically uh, explained to me the same thing. Uh, and in our interviews, when we're called out like that, uh, we always do what's called a soft interview. Uh, we're not applying any pressure, not anything, because we're still gathering facts. Um, after speaking with the physician on duty, my understanding with this child was, was low sick. He was very ill, and the possibility of him making it through the night was slim to none. Uh, with that information, I asked uh, the boyfriend if he'd be willing to come to headquarters and, and speak with me about uh, further, further, and he did. So at that time, uh, we came down to headquarters and uh, where our interview rooms were here in headquarters at the time, on the child abuse side, it was audio, but there wasn't any, any video. And so I had spoken with him and he had given a story that uh, Davion was pushing around a little push toy in the bedroom and he tripped and fell and hit his head on the bedpost. And he began to seize and that's when he called Davion's mom and then eventually uh, 911 was called and took the child to the hospital. And so the REACH team, who is our physicians that um, at, at children's who are specialists, uh, they did an evaluation of the child and basically talked about all of his injuries and everything. And one thing we do in our investigations is we speak with the REACH doctors. And we'll say, well, this is a story I was given. Uh, how likely is it that the injuries could have possibly been caused by this? And they will tell us uh, yes or no. And in that particular case, was I was told no. Uh, that type of blunt force trauma couldn't be caused by a child pushing a push toy and falling into the bedpost. And so based upon that, based upon... Uh, the story that was given, I had enough to obtain a warrant for his arrest and place him in jail. Uh, several months later, the case goes to trial, and this is my first time ever testifying in a child abuse case. And I remember as I'm on the stand testifying, uh, the prosecutor asked me, she's like, Detective Foreman, can you talk to me about what the defendant said during your interview? And I started talking, and the judge stood up, and she did, Detective, don't you say one more word. If you do, I'll hold you in contempt. And I looked at her, and, of course, I didn't say anything because I didn't want to be held in contempt. And she demanded that the uh, prosecutor and the defense 
come up to the desk and uh, to her bench and speak with her. And then after that, there was a break. And basically, the judge told me that if this trial is lost, it's going to be because of me and my actions. And still, being young, on, as a detective, I didn't know exactly what I had done wrong. And, and later on, I learned that I didn't do anything wrong at all. Uh, that there was just, you know, sometimes there's things going on in, in the background that you don't know about. And that was one of those situations. And... Uh, Needless to say, at the, at the end of the day, there was a conviction, and he got 50 years for his actions against Davion, who would have been 15 or 16 now. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he didn't live to to see those days, to see now, you know, and um, th- that's a tragedy. And unfortunately, that happens so often uh, with the cases that we work. And that's the first major case. That, that was, was the first lead major case yeah. that I was a lead detective on. And, and I, I learned a lot from that. I learned a whole lot from that. Even from the testimony even, aspect. Even from the testimony aspect, uh, one of the issues that the judge had was that when I interviewed him, the defendant, at the hospital, that the room was really small, that I didn't tell him that he didn't have, that he could refuse to come to headquarters and speak with me. Oh, and, and, and I wasn't aware of that. I didn't tell him that he had to go. I said, would you be willing to? And he said, yes. And that's something that the defense brought up. And, and it was an issue. And I think it was a tactic that, that was used at that time. But nevertheless, uh, justice prevailed in, in that particular case. Just for the listeners, because uh, I'm not entirely sure myself, can you describe what a REACH doctor is and what, what their function is? Uh, REACH doctors uh, at the REACH clinic at Children's, um, they are doctors that are, that are specifically trained in the areas of child abuse and, and making a determination if an injury or whatnot is caused uh, by something that's, that's abusive. Uh, Kristen, can you further elaborate on that they have they're specialized and there's actually not that many um like certified child abuse doctors in the united states i found out recently um so it is a more rare specialty but they can look at they do skeletal surveys like 20 something x-rays they can look at a break or an injury and they can usually tell you the mechanism or what caused it and I will tell you that I have been really skeptical before because I'll be getting a story from a parent and it sounds legit. And I'm like, are we sure that's not what happened? And the doctors will say, no, there's no way that's what caused this break. It had to have been like a twisting force. It had to have been a loading force. It had to have been whatever. And um, sure enough, I keep talking to the parent and exactly what the doctor said so they are very good at what they do they can look at burns they can look at broken bones they can look at head injuries and they can really give us an idea and even if they can't immediately say what happened we can take back a story or tell them what the parents are telling us happened and say is this possible and they can say yes that's possible no that's not what happened there's no way do you guys see consistencies in the stories that you get from the parents on like the lies that we get yes yes and Corey can probably talk more Um, about that most definitely most definitely so you talked about your first case ever and you did get some semblance of justice Mm. um can you walk us through how an investigation looks in your unit uh as far as getting assigned the case and your steps and what you 
all these different pieces that you put together over the years of how it goes uh, for that type of investigation? Well, let's let's just say if it's a sex abuse case. Okay. Uh, if it's a sex abuse case, um, once the case is assigned to us, we do we set up what's called a forensic interview where the child is interviewed at the Dallas Children's Advocacy Center by a forensic interviewer. Uh, forensic interviewers are not police, they're not CPS, they're not with the courts, they're, they're independent. Uh, the interviewers are trained to interview children. Uh, it's what's accepted in the courts, it's what's preferred from the district attorney's office or whatnot for investigations. Uh, I can tell you now, uh, Nikisha was a was a forensic interviewer and they're very special people I couldn't do what they do because I can tell you this for sure when a child is making an outcry during an interview about being sexually assaulted I can investigate child abuse cases but that I cannot do I cannot talk to a child that's talking about being sexually assaulted because I would be crying with them I would be in a fetal position sucking my thumb on the floor in that room and so that's not good uh, I don't think it'd be good for the child I mean they would much rather talk to somebody that reminds them of their mom or their older sister than a 6'3 guy 230 pounds with a, a voice like Darth Vader right <laughs> you know yeah so uh, forensic interviewers uh, Keisha why don't you talk about the forensic interview process since that was your area of expertise sure. and you're one of the best to ever do it I paid him to say that. Can you also kind of real quick go over while you're doing that the MDT um, model and kind of just explain the players to everybody too? Sure. So um, prior to Corey's involvement in the child abuse unit, when um, child abuse cases were investigated, everyone was basically doing their own thing. No one was communicating. No one was um, collaborating at all. And so children were falling through the cracks. And so the purpose um, of the advocacy center was to basically bring all of these entities together and to make sure that we're all collaborating and communicating and together ensuring that no child falls through the cracks. And so the purpose of the forensic interview, it's a fact-finding interview. It's um, conducted at the developmental level of the child, but the sole purpose of it is to gather that information for the investigative parties, but in a way that is child-friendly, in a way that... Um, as the detective and the investigators are listening, that they're able to kind of paint a picture of what was going on in that room. So they're actually watching it. As so they're, okay. yes. So the forensic interviewer is in a room with the child and then the detective and child protective services, if they're involved, they're watching from um, the observation room. Um, back when Corey started, it was a one way mirror Right. that we loved and then now it's they watch on a, on, a, on a screen and you're just you're talking to the child and the detectives back there behind the scenes just making notes taking and, notes okay. Yes. okay and so there's different stages to that interview and so for that forensic interviewer the most important stage is that um rapport stage because if that child doesn't trust that interviewer they're not going to talk and so it may be one of the 
maybe the detectives worst part of the interview because we're at they're asking things like what they like to do for fun they're asking about home life and things like that but they're also trying to assess different things so they're they're assessing that child's communication style and their developmental the developmental level because they don't want to ask that child any questions that they know they're not going to be able to answer so if they can't answer that type of question during rapport when I'm asking about like oh this is what you like to do for fun of course they're not going to be able to answer those types of questions when they're asked about sexual abuse and so they're building that that rapport and they want to be able to get those um, like sensory details for those for the investigators they want to get who what where when and how Um, and when you're talking to an eight-year-old and that eight-year-old can tell you that he made me suck it till the white stuff came out that's impactful for their investigation because what eight-year-old well now might be a little different Um, what eight-year-old knows about white stuff coming out of a man's penis and so that interviewer wants to try to basically make that child a truth teller and so they're asking questions to kind of cooperate the outcry that they've that they've made you you said something about like the some kids won't match up with the interviewer like do you how quickly quickly do you realize that okay i'm not maybe the person to talk to this child and how does is there like a like a, a chance how does that change if you do you have another forensic interviewer go go at them or how's that look so in the past we have had um situations to where um that interviewer got in there and they realized that they weren't the best fit and so in the moment they switched and so we've had um there's across the state there aren't a lot of african-american interviewers but a, a lot of the demographic that we serve are african-americans and so that was part that was a lot of um, some of the things that I ran into as an interviewer is I remember getting called in several times in the middle of the night because a detective called um, the on-call interviewer and it was a white woman with blonde hair and blue eyes but the victim was a, a black teenager and didn't want to talk to her and so I came in and and we talked because she could she could relate or felt like I could relate to her a little more than someone with blonde hair. You deal with a lot. I know a lot of the suspects uh, are Hispanic as far as uh, non-English speaking. Do you run across that a lot? So we do have, and that's why we have Spanish speakers. Most, we have what, five Five. now? Yes. Five Spanish speakers now um, because that is part of the demographic that we serve. Right. Right. Are those a lot more difficult to, you know, to, you get the child to paint a picture that's even understandable to you well i would have to 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 me yes as an english speaker right. however we have uh several spanish-speaking detectives and so uh they can better understand and communicate and and usually when when i get assigned a case and i learn that it's all spanish uh one of our spanish detectives will Okay, you give me one of yours, and and you take this, and you work this for me. Uh, it's better for the child. It's, it's better better for the unit. It's better for everybody. And yeah. so it's good having Spanish speakers. Let, you know, now we're on it because I know, but trust me, I've done enough of these episodes. I know how it goes. You better listen. You better give some shout outs to these Spanish speaking detectives oh, in, your, in your unit because uh, yeah. you know they're they're going to listen. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you yeah. might want to give yeah. them a shout out. Yeah. Fidel Perez. <laughs> That's my classmate, Alberto, Alberto Layton, Jeanette Perez. 
Hector Puente. Hector Puente. Yeah, those guys really step up. Juan Delgado. And, uh, Juan Delgado, one of our newer detectives. Okay. Those guys step up. Uh, Irene Galvez. And uh, they handle business when we can't. And you have uh, Blaine Burgess. Blaine Burgess, yes. And uh, who else do you got over there? Cooper. Dwayne Cooper. Uh, Dwayne Cooper, yeah. Uh, and I will say, um, aside from just them speaking Spanish, there are a lot of cultural things mm-hmm. right. that come up. Um, and I found that when I had a out-of-town forensic that I was watching. And I had this kid start talking about an egg. And the forensic interviewer had no idea what they were talking about. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And I'm like, this sounds like some folk stuff. So I texted one of our Spanish-speaking detectives, and they were able to go over that. Um, so we are really blessed now. Corey was there when we had, I think, two Spanish-speaking detectives. Right, and right, I think yeah. that was really brutal yeah. on the whole unit and the Spanish speakers. So we are really blessed right now to have, I think, six. Right, because I remember back when uh, your lieutenant, uh, Liz, was uh, a detective there in our unit. Uh, and then Abel... Abel Lopez, yeah, uh, who's a fantastic detective, and of course uh, I, I, I call him the Gringo, uh, Daniel Green, who spoke <laughs> fluent Spanish. He was an amazing Spanish speaker, um, and yeah, Lily White, L- L- yeah. Lily White, yeah. and uh, hey, hey, the the Spanish, uh, the Hispanic detectives would come to him and ask him about certain words in Spanish. And uh, and he knew. And I love. He was Daniel. fantastic. Yeah, actually, awesome I had I, I, uh, taught him a little bit of RMS and LEA uh, uh, about a month ago. I, okay. lo- I love that dude. I've yeah. known him since he was a rookie at Southeast. Yeah, great guy. Yeah. So Corey, the the dynamics of working with FIs, and also I want I want y'all to kind of talk about the role of CPS because y'all have a different dynamic than a lot of. A lot of other investigative units of different yeah. people you have to rely on and work together with. Right. Well, uh, working with CPS in our cases, uh, a, a lot of our, our victims, uh, there there is some type of previous history, uh, family history with child abuse. And that's where CPS comes in. If there is previous history, even though it's not uh, with law enforcement, uh, they have a CPS background. And CPS can get us all of that information and uh, tell us about what happened in prior cases. Um, And even in some cases where we aren't able to uh, file a a criminal case against someone, well, CPS can look at it and say, well, even though that's not a criminal case, we find that there is reason to believe that this child has been harmed or, or could possibly be harmed. And so based on CPS guidelines, they can get involved and they can do things that, that uh, we can't do. Uh, they can have uh, parents take classes or whatnot uh, from from the family court side and, and do different things that we can't uh, so that eyes can be kept on them, you know, and help protect the kid. And I want to mention, too, that, and, and I know this from Kristen and just other detective friends, how CPS is so understaffed, just like everybody. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and you know, I know that there's a lot of people that well there's a lot of people that complain about us and yeah but there's well, also a lot of people that complain yeah about CPS. Uh, well let me tell you uh, cps sometimes get a bad rap uh yeah. of, of course they make mistakes sometimes just like we do but i think uh the majority of them are, are very good workers very capable at their job uh but they are very understaffed 
Um, so they they can't always do the things that that we want or need them to do because there's a manpower issue. Yeah, just like here. I mean, just well, like it, here, just any job. Uh, it's, there's not many entities that uh, work with law enforcement that are our law enforcement that don't have shortages somewhere. Right. Um, you know, so how is that? How is are CPS workers? Are they housed out of DCAC as well? Yes. There are is it three or four units over there, Kristen. I never know. Yeah. So there, there's either three or four units uh, there uh, housed out of the six uh-huh. at, uh, at the DCAC. Uh, now, I remember back when I came <laughs> To child abuse back in 06, there was only one unit uh, that was housed there. Uh, back then, there was, I believe, about 40, 40 child abuse, excuse me, 40 uh, employees of DCAC, whereas now there's 120 employees uh, of DCAC. Uh, and like I said, there's six CPS units there at the Advocacy Center. So it's pretty huge. It's a it's a big operation uh, that's definitely needed. I had spoke with someone the other day about the numbers. Um, Child abuse unit. We worked over thirty one hundred cases this past year. Uh, that's only child abuse, and you throw in child exploitation uh, along with high risk. They worked a thousand cases. Uh, I spoke with one of the detectives in ICAC yesterday. They worked over 2,000 cases. Um, I believe it was the forensic interviewers. They'd done over 1,000 forensic interviewers for Dallas alone. Uh, Child abuse unit was over 600. Uh, Child exploitation, uh, just over 300 forensic interviews that they did. So uh, we're really busy. Now, I wouldn't go out and start saying, well, man, Dallas has a, a child abuse issue in the city of Dallas. Well, it's not necessarily so because there's 1.2 million citizens, 1.2 million people in the city of Dallas. This is a major metropolitan city. So if you look at the numbers, I wouldn't say that we have any more than any other major metropolitan city. It's just uh, it's just busy everywhere. Can you tell the listener the criteria in which it makes it falls under your unit to investigate? Uh, child abuse, we investigate cases that involve family members uh, or caregivers, which could go from parents to teachers uh, to even clergy. I've, I've worked cases uh, where clergy were the perpetrators, where teachers were the perpetrators, parents, cousins. Uh, we do all of that. If, if they're a caregiver or, or family member, is the perpetrator then we investigate those cases and it's both physical and sexual abuse by those members and then child deaths under 10 yes unless it's readily apparent that it's a stranger that did it has that criteria always pretty much been in place or is uh is it it, is it changed over the years uh since i've been in the unit it's been the same criteria i believe okay and y'all y'all recently have uh this year gained a lot more cases correct uh normal than yeah i believe it was an extra five six hundred cases this year that's something like that is what something like that now i can tell you uh with the whole COVID thing when the world shut down a couple years back uh our cases fell off the cliff uh kids weren't going to school uh 
making outcries. So therefore, we got less cases. Now, once uh, everything opened back up, kids went back to school. Then the cases went through the roof because, hey, what'd you do during COVID? Oh, well, this happened to me when I was at home, blah, 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 blah. Then all of a sudden, these uh, referrals are being made. And so we get those cases. And you're catching up from back then. We're catching up from back then. Uh, also, something else that came along with the whole COVID thing uh, was that as far as our cases being filed with the district attorney's office, uh, that's backed things up for going to the grand jury. Uh, what used to be a four to six week process for a case to go before the grand jury has turned into a three to four week, excuse me, a three to four month process before it goes. So when you work, you going back in the on the flow of uh, okay. investigation never with the fis they you get gain as much information as you can then how does that look for you as far as taking what the initial interviews and then the the interviews after how that looks as far as building building your case up to the point of arrest well, warrant? If, if a kid makes a an outcry uh which we deem is is definitely uh worthy of being investigated and prosecuted uh, we'll send the kid to the REITS clinic to have some have a uh, rape kit or physical evaluation if need be, uh, basically depending upon how long the uh, s- since the assault occurred. If it's something that happened the day before, that morning, a couple of days earlier, excuse me, we'll send the kid straight to, to REITS to get evaluated. Uh, if not, uh, we'll call the perp or whatnot if if that's something that we need to do if it's something that just recently happened and the perpetrator lives in the home uh we'll have officers go to the residence and get them or or to their job if necessary and bring them to the advocacy center and that's just to protect like if a child still you take you do factor in if a child they're still in immediate danger correct correct living with a suspect correct because the last thing we want to do is have that happen again uh, right after the outcry, if the perp lives in the home, uh, we, we can't let that happen. Or a re- retaliation. Right, retaliation. Yeah. Uh, we don't want that child going home and uh, being told to change their story or whatnot. Uh, we don't want that happening. We want to deal with it immediately. Can you talk about the decision-making process in terms of when you're going to decide to file a case versus when you decide not to file a case? Well, uh, if, if it's physical abuse, uh, it's something that we decide based upon the, the injuries, based upon the level of the injuries. A lot of the cases we get in that are physical abuse, uh, a lot of the cases we don't file because in the state of Texas, you have the right to discipline your child. Uh, sometimes that might leave a minor mark or, or, or discoloration or something that's not abuse per se. It's just something that's a result of of discipline uh in a case like that if there is no prior uh, cps history there is no prior law enforcement history uh regarding someone disciplining their child and leaving marks and bruises uh we'll usually sit down and have a talk with that individual and say hey you know by state law you do have a right to discipline your child however in the future uh, you you might want to try to do something different because you don't want to be popping up on on our radar every time you discipline your child is just not a good looking thing um if it's a sex abuse case 
a lot of our cases, uh, there isn't any physical evidence. Uh, we have to go on uh, the forensic interview, the word of the child, uh, our interviews with the suspects. Uh, we'll make a determination exactly what we do. Not all cases are filed. I get, and we get asked in court a lot, or at least I have, about whether we file all of the cases. And a lot of people will ask me, they're like, oh, you just believe in all of the kids. Um, and while we'd like to be able to believe all of the kids, we know that not all of the time kids are going to tell the truth. Not all the times are they going to tell the truth. And it, it's funny you bring that up, Christian, because. Uh, one of the biggest issues that, that we've had on sex cases and even physical abuse cases, a lot of kids these days have iPhones or, or whatnot. And, man, you take away a kid's phone, they feel like you're in their lives. And so that's a, a lot of motivation sometimes as to why uh, things are made up, stories are told that are not true. And that goes back to what Keisha said about forming that rapport with the kids and the how important the forensic is because it's very convincing when a five-year-old explains sexually something that happened to them in five-year-old terms um and it's really impactful when you're hearing it and you're like i know exactly what they're saying happened to them but they're saying it in the way a five-year-old would say it not the way an adult would say it and they shouldn't know what they're talking about they shouldn't know anything about that so it is really impactful and so the forensic really is i think a key part of the investigation the outcry is a really important part important part of the investigation in terms of our sex abuse cases right yeah because uh one thing we want to do every time uh, we want to get it right um we don't want to put anybody in jail that doesn't need to go to jail but the people that need to go for abusing children, we want to we want to get that right every time. So we 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 have a standard that that we have to live up to. Uh, people have rights, and, and we're gonna we're gonna do the right thing every time. Corey, uh, you talked about in your bio uh, the mental health epidemic and how that contributes to this type of offense. Can you can you explain that? Um, I I guess I use the word epidemic a, a little loosely. Let me just say. Uh, something that I've experienced a lot over the last five years as opposed to earlier when I started. I've had a a lot of cases, especially involving uh, injuries, uh, children that have been seriously injured uh, by perpetrators, usually uh, uh, parents on these cases. Uh, A lot of those perpetrators, when I I speak with them, uh, I learn that they're on some type of uh, mental health medication uh, or supposed to be on and, and wasn't on and uh they would say that well maybe that had something to do with it i haven't had my medication at the time uh and as i've done some research on some of those uh cases i noticed that uh those perpetrators had pri- previously been to terrell or or dallas behavioral uh health uh for treatment uh not only the perps but i've noticed that a lot of children as well uh, have been diagnosed with mental health issues. And uh, that's something that uh, we're dealing with a lot. How has technology factored into this? Well, when when I started the unit back in 2006, things were a lot different. Uh, the iPhone had not yet been created. Uh, if it was, uh, most people didn't have it. Uh, I think the BlackBerry and some of those other phones where you could only text or whatnot, but 
sense of smartphones have been created that's uh, created a whole new avenue for perpetrators to get to children, uh, i.e. social media, Facebook and these uh, Instagram and other social media sites. Is it a type of bullying or, or is it just, I mean, can you explain more on that? Well, on that, well, I mean from the sexual part. Okay. Uh, because you have perpetrators uh, that have access to your kids now that never had access to them before. Uh, now, as far as the child abuse unit, we don't necessarily deal with those cases, but uh, ICAC, uh, child exploitation, they're much more... Uh, they, they deal with that a heck of a lot more than we do. And so that that's created an avenue for perpetrators to get to our children. Do you often see, like, get some of your evidence from the phones and, and uh, electronic devices that maybe a family member might be using that as a, as a way to communicate? Absolutely. Okay. Um, we, we do that quite a bit. Uh, we do a warrant for a search of a cell phone especially if the child mentions during a forensic interview that oh he or she took pictures of me or they sent me a certain text or whatnot uh we're able to get a warrant for those cell phones and uh have have icac uh go through those phones and get the necessary evidence that we need uh a lot of the evidence corroborates what the children say during the forensic interview uh, a lot of times we in the process you learn that not only are they doing that but you may find child porn or you may find evidences of, of different types of crimes I, want, I meant to ask this earlier about the uh the and i know every every suspect's different but i want to get into like a profile of a suspect as far as commonalities that you've seen in almost two decades of doing this where some of the su- is prior abuse to the suspect yes. growing up is that yes. common a, a lot of the suspects uh we call them perpetrators a lot of them were victims themselves uh not only were they victims themselves a lot of them are, are, are drug addicts and uh especially when it comes to, to to physical abuse uh a lot of parents that abuse their kids that's the way they were brought up they were brought up they were being physically abused and Maybe they didn't know, and and it, and uh, would say ignorance of the law is is no excuse. Uh, so, Kristen, you want to you want to talk on that as well for the physical abuse? Yes. Yeah, I I mean I have a lot of people be like, well, you can't spank your kids at all. I'm like, no, you can spank them. Your problem is probably that you waited until they were 13, right, and then started trying to spank them, and that was never going to go well. For our sex abuse cases. They tend, they're typically male. Um, right. I've had very few female sex abuse cases. Um, so they usually are male. Over, and this is what gets me, I talk to you about this all the time, Joe. Not over 90% of abuse is sexual abuse, is by a person the kid knows. So it kills me when we hear this stranger danger in school. And I know that schools are going over internet safety because Carmen's talked about that stuff that she's learned in school on internet safety. And we go over that with her. Um, but the whole idea of stranger day, I hate it when I hear it because the majority of sexual abuse cases that we get and that the city of Dallas gets are somebody that the kid already knows. Right. right. Um, for physical abuse, we've noticed that potty training 
tends to be a really big trigger right. for physical abuse cases. So when, during tra- potty training, if we are in a case and we hear that the kid is having trouble with potty training or tends to poop a lot or, you know, they get into their diaper and then spread poop around or whatnot, it tends to be a pretty big trigger. Um, and we will see that a lot in terms of our physical cases. Right. And, and, and to, to ca- further on about that is uh, a lot of our physical abuse cases, the parents have a lot of prior CPS history. I mean, this is not their first rodeo. Uh, so it's there's a lot of recidivism there. And that's why it's important to document uh, Correct. properly back whenever. Correct. Okay. Correct. And, and you see a lot of... Uh, um, you, you you noticed you pointed out that there's a lot of history with a lot of these suspects uh and just like and it really it's up to the initial officer responding right of making that cps referral right to help you further your case and then even also help that child later on that you see it they see a pattern of right and and, and even uh it's very important that officers do that but even if they don't we always check CPS history on, on every case uh, to see if there's any type of priors. Uh, you know, just a second ago, we were talking about the mental health thing. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about one case in particular that uh, it's definitely a, a mental health case. About two years ago, we were in the office and uh, we got a call saying, hey, there's a there's a stabbing out at this particular address. A, a child has been stabbed. Uh, patrol is out there. We need a detective out here fast. So, of course, uh, a couple of detectives suited up and went out. Well, what had happened, there was a seven-year-old little girl that had been stabbed uh, in excess of 30 times by her mom. Uh, the story goes, uh, mom was visiting uh her mom uh, and she took her seven-year-old daughter over there and so our perp she had a a 16-year-old brother he had a friend over and they were just hanging out Uh, now this mom has had some prior mental health issues she had uh, been in tarot before she was on some mental health uh, medication uh, and and she has a long history of mental health issues however as of late, she hadn't done anything and her child had been removed, but she had gotten her child back because she had went through the necessary steps and and uh, with CPS or whatnot and was able to get her child back. Well, I don't know what happened that day, but uh, brother's friend was in the bathroom combing his hair. And I, I don't know what happened that set this lady off. Uh, she walked in and just started stabbing this 15 year old in the back of his head. And so her bro- and so the kids yelling and screaming. And so her brother ran into the bathroom and grabbed the sister off of her and yelled for the mom uh, to come in. And so mom came in and asked her what was wrong with her. And it was that point that she grabbed her seven year old daughter and she stabbed her over 30 times. Um, there was a DSO officer who lived next door Uh the brother ran out screaming for help and and he's got blood all over him and everything and so the dso officer went around the back uh, to see what was going on and so the brother's friend ran outside and so he drove him to the hospital well the seven-year-old was in the living room and uh, she was dead i i don't know exactly what happened with the 911 system but it was like 30 minutes before officers had gotten 
dispatched out to that location. Uh, my understanding was that either the sergeant or the lieutenant went into detail and said, hey, you guys got to suit up and get out there ASAP. We got a stabbing. So once the mother, the perp, was brought down to our office, um, it's probably maybe an hour and a half before I, I got a chance to talk to her because there were other witnesses, uh, neighbors from next door, the grandmother, the brother. We had to get all of them interviewed, and they just talked about how this lady just went crazy, and they talked about her mental health history. And so when I went in to speak with her, and now, granted, she had all P.S. had come out, and they had taken her clothes and put her in, I believe, with some type of jumpsuit or something because all the blood or whatnot. And um, other than learning from her mom that she had a history of mental health, I mean, this is fresh. I don't really know what's going on. And so I went in and I sat down and talked with her and um, asked and told her who I was and, and why I was there. And it's like, you know, I told her that my understanding was that some bad things had happened that day and that her daughter was injured. And so I, I read her her rights and she just looked at me and said, oh, I can't talk to you. I really fucked up. And so of course that was the end of my conversation with her. Uh, but as I went out and uh, talked to more people, some of our detectives went out to the scene. It was gruesome. It, it was really bad. Uh, at that, at the time, at that time, your unit, the Al unit, I don't believe was in existence. And so those officers that uh, responded to that scene, my understanding that they're really messed up uh, from from what they saw. And of course, this isn't the first time that that's happened, but uh, they're really messed up. So what I learned was this lady had a, a long history of uh, being in and out of tarot Um off of her meds uh, there had been a long history of cps of her child being removed uh, she had a history with dpd because she had stabbed a a, a boyfriend uh, a couple of years back uh, so i believe it was a month or so maybe maybe several months later uh this particular individual had a twin sister and CPS was involved in her life as well. Now, I believe that this lady lived down in Ellis County. And my understanding was that her children had been removed as well. And that um, due to her CPS history and that she could not have supervised visitation with her child. Um, CPS learned that that she had those children without supervision and that they went over there. And once CPS got there, uh, she took a knife and, and stabbed several of her children and they died as well. So the big question to me was, I mean, how, how could that have happened? You've got two sisters with mental health issues that are twins that have both killed their children. I remember that case out in Ellis County. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So were you aware of this case that I worked with a sister? No. Oh, yeah. Twin sister. Uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, you talked about the 
the officers that responded to the scene being, you know, that being messed up. Oh, yeah. How does that affect you? Well, I mean, I, I, I definitely wish that uh, there were some systems in place. Now there are systems in place. Um, back then, I'm, I'm not so sure. My understanding is that those officers were, were available to, to take some time off. Now, whether they did or not, um, I don't know. But uh, I know that there's definitely systems in place now uh, for officers to receive help. Uh, what do you do personally to to manage to live as long as you have in this same career, in this same division? You know, early on, I, I, I really had a problem with dealing with it. Uh, there was a senior detective back in the day, Mike Kemp. Uh, Mike retired probably about 10 years ago. And he told me, he said, look, two things. He said, take your time off on the regular. He said, and once you do all you can to file that case, you're done with it. Don't go home thinking about it. Don't think about what you could have done. He said, man, you got to get it off of your mind. You got to take your time off. Uh, it took me a while to realize that what he was saying was based on his own experience. And so over the past several years, I take my time off. We talked about this on break. Uh, all my coworkers know that I'm up at 3.30 every morning. Uh, I'm up meditating, uh, journaling. I go to the gym. Uh, I take my time off. Every chance I get, I'm on a beach in the Caribbean. And child abuse is nowhere on my mind. It's with a good cigar, a good book, some smooth jazz, and maybe one or two glasses of bourbon. And uh, that works for me. Um, I noticed that most of us in the child abuse unit have certain cases that get to us. And most of the time we go out and we're fine on whatever cases we're working. But there are certain cases that, you know, we'll get to people and I'm not going to call anybody right. out on it. But right. what what cases get to you the most? You know, there was there was a case probably about seven years ago. Myself, uh, I wasn't the lead detective. Uh, I assisted, he's a lieutenant now, uh, Julio Gonzalez. Uh, he was a detective in our unit at the time. And it was on a Sunday. I remember it like it was yesterday. And some things you just can't unsee. Um, officers were called out on off Royal Lane on Channel 2 Northeast Patrol Division. There was a child that was missing. Uh, I believe she was five years old and mom came out she was looking and she couldn't find her five-year-old daughter um so basically the entire apartment complex is out looking for this kid um come to find out there was a cousin that had come to town from mexico i believe was 17 18 years old um at the time and so the officers are out looking for this kid and one of the neighbors said well I think she was with that guy right there uh, before she went missing because I saw her out playing on the steps and she was playing with that guy and it was the cousin. He took off running. And so a couple of neighbors tackled the guy or whatnot. So they're talking to him and he wouldn't say anything. So the officers are looking around. They found an empty apartment uh, a few buildings away and uh, they were able to go in through the window 
And so they're looking for the apart, looking through the apartment and they go in the back room and they open this door and they found this kid, five year old. Uh, he had hung this girl in the closet. He had sexually assaulted her and hung her in the closet. And so we got called out and man, we got out. I mean, those officers were really messed up. Myself and Detective, uh, well, Lieutenant Julio Gonzalez um, then and Sergeant Reginald Matthew, who was my sergeant at the time. And, you know, uh, the commander at the scene was like, well, yeah, pointed us through. Yeah, she's in there. And so I went in first and they're following me. And I remember turning the corner, I opened the closet. I will never be able to unsee in my mind this five-year-old hanging inside the closet. And the first thing I noticed, she had very long hair. I never saw her face. Her hair was hanging over her face. And I saw those. I saw those little white patent leather shoes. Hanging from the ground. And I can never unsee that. I can never unsee that. Uh, you know, over the years, sometimes I think about it. It's definitely not a daily thing, but I think about it from time to time. And uh, I, I kind of get emotional about it. And uh, anyway, uh, we found out that he sexually assaulted this little girl. And uh, Detective uh, Julio at the time, he went down and they had brought him down. And Julio had... Uh, Gonzalez had interrogated him and he gave it up what he did that he had raped her and I believe uh, he was afraid and ended up hanging the girl there in the closet in that that empty apartment where he raped her at. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what he got if he got life or whatnot but there was some type of plea uh, that he didn't go to trial and he was just a cousin that was up visiting uh, for a couple of weeks and uh, saw an opportunity and, and 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 took it and so that that's one of the cases that I will never be able to to unsee I think for most of us because um, we do the deaths we do trial deaths we do. Um, and we it's the cases with the absolute most depravity that you will ever see and just this realization and you're sitting with the case if you're a primary detective you're sitting with the case for at least a week maybe weeks you're drowning in it right. where you're just surrounded by all of the evidence and right. all of these interviews and you're going over it and you may have gone to the autopsy and you have to go over the autopsy images and you have to you have to rehear it over and over again and you know that this baby or this young child does not have the ability to speak for themselves and right. at some point did not have someone looking out for them and you want so badly to speak for this kid for this child and you want to solve the case and you want to give them the voice that they did that was taken from them right and I think that, and I've seen with you, because you've gotten some just truly heinous cases since I've been on this unit. You get some of the most 
terrible ones and I think those are the hardest ones to sit with and if you are in child abuse and you haven't cried at some point going (laughs) home or at home or at work then you're probably lying yeah because Joe's seen it and I think we've all seen it and it's I think those are the cases and I think with you that I've seen that those are the ones that tend to get to you the most yeah and another thing is the the collateral damage that's done not only is this child injured or or killed or or whatnot, but the family, uh, you know, the mom or that that that's not the perp, you know, the the siblings. If that child is gone, uh, how do they carry on? Uh, that's one thing that's good about about the DCAC is is uh, they offer therapy for 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 the kids. They offer therapy uh group therapy for the family or whatnot and they uh really do the city of dallas a solid by providing the resources that that uh maybe the police department can't can't do on their own i mean the police department has a lot of irons in the fire you know and that's where dcac comes along and they step in and they can do some things that we can't do they have access to things that we don't have access to all right, Keisha, um, I'm going to direct this this question towards you and uh, I want you to kind of educate us on what the DCAC has uh, in relation to education, services for victims. I mean, we've talked a lot about a lot. This is a heavy episode, clearly, and we knew going in it was going to be there's no pretty side to to child abuse. OK, but can you. Tell the listener uh, about some of the services that that the victims had, what y'all do for the victims after the fact. So after the fact, part of our role is to help these families put their life back together. Um, when they come for that forensic interview, a lot of times their world gets flipped upside down. And so that day, our family advocate team steps in and they basically wrap their arms around that non-offending caretaker and try to fill in the gaps because there's a lot of times the the perpetrator is the um, breadwinner. So mom doesn't know how she's going to make ends meet. And so we try to help with that. Um, we do help with, uh, with therapy services for the family, for... Um, the non-offending family members, but we also step in throughout the year as well. And so we have different drives that we put on for our kiddos. So we do, um, there's trunk or treat. So if they want to come and have a safe space to trick or treat, they can, they can come and do that. We have, um, our back to school drives. We just finished up holiday of hope because a lot of our kiddos wouldn't have a Christmas. And so they can come to DCAC, their parents come, and they basically shop for them, and they can have a Christmas now. We also, um, basically anything you can think of to make sure that that family has what they need, we do room makeovers. Because for a lot of our kiddos, that abuse happened in their room, right? And now they have to return back to that room. And so we'll do a room makeover for that kiddo so that when they walk into their room, they're not reminded of the abuse that has happened to them. Um, and our partners get involved in those things, too. Um, and so our role is just really to help this family break down any barriers that may that may come, um, because a lot of barriers will come after all of this. And it's different for, different for every 
folks. And it's different for, yeah. for each family. Mm-hmm. Some families come and they do well. They may go into therapy and or sometimes they don't even need therapy at that time, right? We also have an open door policy. And so the family may be okay initially and then something else hits. And this on top of that sends them in a whirlwind. And so they can always come back for therapy services. We also have a graduation. And so when those kiddos reach the point to where our therapist is like, okay, they're good. They don't, they don't need us anymore. They have a graduation. And so all of us stand in our long hallway and we basically cheer that child on and they get to run through and give us high fives and we're cheering them on because a lot of them, you know, when they their first when they first came into that building, it was the darkest day for them. And a lot of them leaving out, life has completely changed. They're flourishing. They're doing well in school. And it that that abuse didn't define who they were. And so that's part of our role at DCAC, letting those kids know and those families know that this abuse and what happened to your family doesn't define. Well, does it can it make you stronger? Yes. Was it a setback? Yes. But we can. But we're trying to to get them to to the point to where they know like it doesn't have to have a negative impact, a long term negative impact on their life. That's beautiful. I'm glad. I'm glad you do you do that uh, for the families. And I would imagine that as long as you've been there, you've seen a lot of change just in that regard. Because you you know I, I, I'm a big believer that every unit should be ever evolving. And services like that, you may, I'm sure it looks way different now than whenever you first oh, started at the definitely. DC. And I that's started a good thing. In 2008, we had one family advocate, um, Mindy, who is still there. Um, but now we have a, shoot, there's probably, what, 20 advocates Correct. now? Um, and so we realized over time, like, this was something that our families needed. And so we had to make, we had to ourselves grow and adjust and um to try to get the families what they need and try to make it a one-stop shop to where they're not having to go to 50 million different places to get the to get this the help they need. I think another thing that's important for our detectives to remember is yes, we offer those services to the families, but we also offer offer those services to y'all too. Right. Because this this work is hard. Right. And so um, one of the things that it's been kind of hard to push to our law enforcement counterparts is your mental health is important and the in these cases seeing what you guys have to see you you can't be in the field that long and it not take a toll on you um and so when you have these tough cases remembering that we do have resources for y'all too because i know you say you couldn't be a forensic interviewer we as a forensic interviewer we don't have to see what you have to see you know, we don't have to go out to the scene. Like, one of the things that makes it hard in my role now is having to remind the advocacy center staff that we have the luxury of just believing kids. Right. And y'all don't. Right. And that also can take a toll. Because right. there's times where you do all of this work and you still don't, know how, you still don't have enough to, to arrest or you still don't have enough to convict. And so allowing us to also take care of you guys because I know a lot of times Kristen too (laughs) I think y'all are so used to making sure everyone else is okay right and being that first responder that you that you forget about you and so your trips and all that stuff is great 
but let somebody else pour into you. Right. Because you can't keep pouring into all these families and pouring into, I mean, there's been times where y'all have had to console me crying, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's one good thing. Another good thing about the MDT is because we've become, especially those that have been there for a long time. Um, I think I met you in 2008. Right. We become family. Right. And so allowing people to carry that burden with you and realize that you don't have to carry it by yourself. And even if that is a late night phone call or a text message, like, hey, sis, I need something. Right. Right. I need to curse somebody out. I need to do right. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, right. we got you. Yeah. And so, were you about to say something? Oh, no. Go ahead. Oh, you look like, I was like, oh. Well, it's something I've noticed in the unit. Do you talk about work at home? No. Yeah. And no. I... I, you know, I'm with Joe, so I can talk a little bit about work because I'm married to an officer. But there is a certain way that we talk yeah. in the unit. Oh, There's yeah. a banter that we have. Right. And there is that you cannot, no. you can't talk about outside no, of work. Cannot. You can't, no. you can't have those kinds of conversations. You can't have that banter and you can't talk. And it took me, I would say at least a year, a couple years on the unit to realize how strange we are even for yes. other yeah. law enforcement. Right. And how our, our, and we're very close. We are very blessed. We have a very close unit um, that, you know, we can banter, we can knock it along, but at the end of the day, we're still working together. We still work mm. together really well, which mm. is one of the reasons I love this unit and I feel really blessed. But it is even for other law enforcement. I, we, I talked the way that we talk in the units, other law enforcement, mm. and people look at me like, "Are you okay? Are you crazy? Like, what are you guys doing?" Right. So you guys have some pretty heavy cases, and um, yeah, and you guys often end up in court. Yes. Do you celebrate your convictions? No. Might be something you guys look at. I mean, you guys are doing fantastic work, number one, by investigating the entire case and presenting it to the jury the way you do. Um, you need to recognize that you put the work in and that you did everything that you could and that you succeeded in, in finding justice. Because I, I think that would be a huge thing for that entire unit and really every unit on this department, you know, celebrate your successes and, you know, kick those those other ones to the side. Speaking of that, are there some cases that you have worked your ass off on? The units worked their ass off on. The FIs have worked their asses off on to collaborate, and they you go up for prosecution, or it just it just can't prosecute them. It doesn't work out. Can you? Do you does any of those cases stand out to you? Yeah, actually. Uh you know, there, there was a case I had uh, several years ago uh, with uh, your commander, Liz Rivera. She and I worked a case together. Uh, received a call from uh, patrol saying, hey, we're out at Berkner High School. We know this is in Richardson, but uh, the girl lives in the city of Dallas. And uh, she was 13. The girl had gone to school with some scratches on her face. Uh, and the teacher had asked her, what? what happened to you? And she said, well, uh, me and my stepdad got into a fight last night, uh, because I didn't want to have sex. 
and so she was like well what do you mean why why is he trying to have sex with you and and well we have a baby together and whatnot but um the teacher ended up calling uh, in a cps referral and and the police came out and the girl was brought to our advocacy center where she was interviewed and she was 13 years old uh she resided in her apartment with her mom and she had two siblings uh that uh her stepdad was the father of uh during the interview the girl said that two years earlier that her stepfather had started having sex with her she was 11 years old uh she didn't tell her mom because she was afraid and he had threatened to uh, harm the family if she ever told her mom well one day while she was at school mom's cleaning the bedroom cleaning this girl's room and she finds a napkin that was very crusty and so mom didn't know what that was and of course later we found out i mean i assume it was semen uh when the girl got home mom asked this girl you know what is this and that's when the girl outcried to her mom and she was 11 years old at the time that well uh stepdad's been coming in raping me or whatnot well you would think that mom's first thing to do would be to protect her child but that wasn't the case well when stepdad got home uh that evening from work she said you need to make a decision you want my daughter or you want me you cannot have both well stepdad chose the 11 year old daughter and so mom told the daughter from now on you're going to sleep with him every night you're going to cook his food you're going to wash his clothes because i'm not doing it anymore if you want to steal my husband you want him to be your husband well you're going to start doing those things that i do well from that point on the girl said that uh he slept in her room every night uh he had sex with her most nights at, at 12 she ended up getting pregnant she had a baby uh, no one at school knew that she had the baby or whatnot. Uh, so after the forensic interview, mom was called to the advocacy center. She had no reason. Uh, she didn't have any knowledge as to why she was called. Uh, mom was Spanish speaking. So uh, Liz Rivera ended, ended up talking to mom and everything. And mom broke down and was crying and said, she stole my husband. And... We ended up charging mom with continuous sexual abuse of a young child because she was a party to the act and she basically suggested that he do that. Now, him, on the other hand, he fled to Mexico. We were never able to get him. So mom's still in doing her 25 years mandatory uh, for that charge of, of continuous sexual abuse of a young child. 25 years is a mandatory sentence. Where stepdad is still in Mexico somewhere, we believe. He was never arrested. This was uh, several years ago. Now, the worst thing about this case, I mean, I mean that was bad. But when I say collateral damage, there's even worse. A uh, couple of years after that, I got called from officers down at Southeast saying, hey, we arrested this prostitute down here. Uh, and she's saying that what she's doing is not her fault, that she was raped by her stepdad and that she's hooked on drugs because of that. 
and that she's out here and she gave us your name. And so I'm just, man, who is this person? So, you know, I, I look her up and I was, oh my gosh, it was that, it was that girl. Complaining. Complaining, strung out on meth, prostituting. Um, it was just a tragedy. Uh, what ended up happening from that point on, I, I don't know. I didn't keep up with it. But uh, that was definitely a tragedy. And there's absolutely nothing we could do to arrest that man because he's out of the country. Mom's still in jail. Uh, where this girl's baby is and her siblings, I have no idea. But that's one of the tragedies of, of what we do. Uh, a lot of times we want to get justice, but, you know, what is justice? That girl didn't get any justice. You know, uh, I don't even know if she's still alive. So that's that's one of the, the tragedies of um, the remnants of what we do sometimes, of what we have to deal with. One of the many tragedies. Yes. And remnants that yes. carries over. Yes. Forever. I mean, it, that <laughs> it almost you hear it all the time is that that person never had a chance. Right. And that is right. That's a, a great example of a a bad example of of not having a chance at life. Yeah. But just like there's those bad cases like that, we do, we do have good cases. We do have cases where, where we get convictions. We do have cases where kids get therapy or families get therapy. I, a couple of years ago, I got a, a call from a lady saying, Hey, you know, detective Foreman, do you remember me? And I was like, well, ma'am, I don't. And she said, well, you investigated a case with my granddaughter and uh, I'd like to come come up and see you. I was like, okay, I remember this lady. And once she ended up showing up at the advocacy center, I, I immediately remembered her. And she had this beautiful young lady with her. She said, well, this is my granddaughter. And she had graduated at the top of her class. And she said, I want to thank you getting us the help that we need she said and I, I like to think because of you and and the help that you offered us that she's here today graduating at the top of her class and about to go off to college and I just want to thank you for, for what you did it was, it was really good good feeling you know that uh, everything's not a loss I mean uh, I've learned that if you can help if we can help one a day if we can help one a day that's awesome. If, if you get the chance to help two or three or more, hey, man, that's more than merrier. But if you can help one, well, then uh, we, we've done our job and, and we're going to continue to do our job. And that's 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 one thing that helps me get through doing this. And uh, if we can help one every day, well, then uh, we're doing the right thing. Sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you.